Welcome to One to One, the conversational marketing podcast dedicated to helping modern marketing teams succeed in a messaging first and privacy first world. In each episode, we'll interview a marketer who is winning with conversational marketing to distill best practices, lessons learned, and actionable takeaways. Here's your host, Benji Baer, VP of Marketing at Spectrum. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to One to One, the conversational marketing podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Aaron Zaga, Chief Marketing Officer at Newton Baby. Aaron, thanks for chatting with me today. Pleasure. Good to meet you. Yeah, I know it's uh, you know a new year. It's always interesting to see what challenges that brings. I'm really excited for our conversation today in particular and uh, how you're seeing marketing evolve and what you have planned for this year. You know, Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and how you ended up in your current role at Newton Baby? Yeah, I have a kind of atypical background. The first half of my career was actually in investment banking. It's just kind of what I did out of school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Thought I wanted to start a company, didn't have a good idea. So that's just what I did. But I quit after a year and a half to start a company. It failed pretty spectacular. We kind of pivoted through another startup, which was actually in tech. And it was a super early kind of uh, live shopping, social e-commerce company, but way ahead of its time. That sort of began the pivot of my career solidly into e-commerce. My first kind of bigger role was running international business for Telefor, the big online flower company. And then I ended up in my current role at Newton Baby uh, about four years ago. And yeah, Newton's the lead, one of the leading baby brands. We make the top-selling luxury crib mattress, safest product on the market. Babies can literally breathe straight through it. It's really cool material. It's like ramen noodles before you put it in water. And building on the success of that product, we've recently launched pet beds. So even pets have better beds now. Pregnancy pillows, all kinds of related baby stuff too. Nice. As someone who uh, recently had a son, I think the prospect, I didn't even know that, you know, crib mattresses were a, a suffocation concern. But hearing you say that, I wish I had known about Newton Baby earlier. Um, I'm sure, yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting also things in that space from a marketing perspective. I'm I'm really excited to dig into today. I have to ask, because you brought it up, what was the business that failed spectacularly? What was oh, this re- yeah, it was this really ugly poster art company. It was kind of like a 3D layered poster art. So you would kind of cut out upper layers. It used to be called decoupage. Anyway, we saw it when we were traveling abroad. And, you know, as 22-year-olds do, thought it would, you know, make a killing in mass market channels in the U.S. We didn't really have an appreciation for how hard it was to sell things and get into the door at Walmart. And yeah, and that was just ugly. It was just ugly. <laughs> we didn't even want to put it in our own twenty-two-year-old apartments. Like I don't know what we're doing. Uh, well, that's funny. I'm sure you you learned a lot from failing hard. Uh, yeah. As as I think that's where most learnings come from. Uh, but yeah, I think moving more onto like the consumer marketing side, right? You're obviously very focused on consumer marketing. I'd, I'd imagine new parent and kind of pet owner marketing now at Newton Baby. But can you you know maybe before getting into specific things that you're doing there and the channels and tactics that you see work well, can you maybe summarize how you see the current state of consumer marketing today? Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting journey with the iOS changes and the privacy changes and everyone freaking out. You know, I think it was fair for some brands to freak out if you were 
selling, you know, low cost cosmetics and you can really adjust Facebook bids 20 times a day and have that work for you, you were probably affected pretty hardcore. We have a longer path to purchase and it requires more customer education. We're more of a luxury product, kind of the higher end. And so we didn't really see much of an impact from the initial iOS changes at all. Granted, measurement got a lot harder, but we didn't have the issue that a lot of brands did. And that the issues came kind of more slowly to us. And they certainly came and our lookalike retargeting audiences shrank. But I, you know, even through the current changes and email privacy changes, I think the initial state of the industry is to overreact and say, oh my God, we're never going to be able to market to anyone ever again in a reasonably positive, you know, ROI positive way. But, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, if you put the right ad in front of the right person, which may be getting a little harder to find the right person, or whatever, but it's still doable and it, it can still be done. And, you know, typically things even out. And so CPMs will drop and you'll still get a similar ROI if you're on, if you're on the ball. So I, I think that the state of the industry right now is probably overly pessimistic, especially given yeah. the CPMs are plummeting everywhere right now, which is great. Yeah, I think we've seen like the there was the initial very strong rising costs all over the place. And then we've seen pullbacks. I think it's, it's that classic ebb and flow too of people shifting investments, you know, as an in, I like I've always liked to think of digital marketing as like an investment portfolio as well, as far as channels are concerned, which I'm sure you probably bring that mindset from your background as well. Uh, and it's yeah, it's interesting to see where people are reallocating their resources in, in today's market. I'd love to hear a little bit more, you know, you mentioned iOS 14, like some of these privacy changes that have affected the measurement side of things and making things difficult. I think a lot of people I speak to have that challenge of like the size of their retargeting audiences, the accuracy of the people that they're targeting. That's one side of it. But you also mentioned that at the end of the day, you have a long path to purchase. You're more of a luxury product. There's a lot of education that goes there. Can you talk to me just a little bit about that? Like, how do you deal with that longer path to purchase? If the measurement piece doesn't scare you so much because you sound quite optimistic, what makes you optimistic? I think the bigger changes for us were how we measured, you know, not whether. And so the gold standard for us has always been customer survey. Like, just ask your customers, why did you purchase? Where did you see this ad? So we do it actually in purchase, but most people call it the post-purchase survey. Super mm-hmm. important. And, you know, again, you're not going to, change bids on one ad versus another given that but you but you have click-through rates or view engagement rates that that haven't changed you still have that data on facebook for example so you can still make those tactical changes based on other data and the big budget allocation decisions based on something like a post-purchase survey or you know the other gold standard for us has always been incrementality so mm-hmm. running incrementality geolift test somewhere or other but those are the things that we've kind of always relied on. Just, you know, I have more of a mathy statistics background than most probably. And so everything I do, I want to measure and track and get whatever data I can to kind of echolocate the highest ROI and which channels to lead into when. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. I've also heard marketers make more and more as you know, I think in the digital space, you have all that data and you can get a little too laser focused on what are you doing with all the data and like those small tactical changes you mentioned, but something like the post-purchase survey is first principles, kind of like the most accurate, relevant kind of information you can get sometimes from your customers directly. Also what's stuck in their mind in that long purchase journey too, of like why why they came to your site and why they purchased. So am I hearing you right when you're saying the the data and measurement that you're getting in platforms allows you to kind of make those tactical decisions, re-add ad creative and things like that, but then the the bigger strategic decisions are made on that more qualitative insight from your customers? 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I mean, for sure, when it comes to the bigger channels and the bigger chunks of your spend, you know, we run 30 marketing channels at any given point in time, which I'm probably over diversified to use your investment analogy. But, you know, maybe that's not going to help you on channels that you're giving, you know, 5% of your budget to. They don't really show up in post-purchase surveys as, as well. Sometimes they do, and then you know that they're really working. So we actually let people fill in the blank. Like if they suggest, I bought this because I saw it from an influencer. We let them fill in the blank for the influencer's name. We run too many influencers to list them all. People want to fill it in. Like they want to give credit to the person that influenced them. And so if there's some micro-influencer that's getting a whole bunch of value, like it shows us that we really need to re- work with this person, you know, renew her, make sure she posts a hundred times more for us, et cetera. So even if they're too small to regularly show up in the post-purchase survey in a meaningful way, any any big changes can certainly be a flag that says, hey, you know, reduce spend or dramatically increase spend. And the rest, yeah. the rest has to be done in the dashboard. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'd love to, you know, you mentioned 30 plus channels and do you have 80% in risky assets, 20% in the safe assets, like a good investor? Or what do you, can you talk to me a little bit about your channel mix and what, what you see work best? Yeah, so it took a real big leap of faith in the beginning, but we didn't do it that way. So before I came on board at Newton, they were running a lot of display and then a lot of paid search in the normal channels. When I came on board, I kind of realized that due to the differentiated product, we really had to tell the story, which can't be done in a banner ad or a paid search link as much. And so I leaned into influencer really heavily from day one, which is an influencer is a very risky asset. Like you go buy a Kim Kardashian tweet and you're going to blow up your whole portfolio immediately because that's going to take your whole budget and it's not going to work. But we found an agency that really specialized in measurement and running it like a performance channel and only working with influencers that kind of had proven their ability to drive revenue. And so we really leaned in and that continues to be our biggest channel. It's also the hardest channel. But over time, we've been able to grow the bigger channels to be a more representative piece of the channel. So we're better diversified now. But yeah, out of the gate, we were not well diversified. But not, now we are. Now it's you know influencer and then paid search and then Facebook, Instagram. Okay, great. And when you say the hardest channel, is that just in terms of scaling, that just managing those relationships? I think every piece of it is the hardest, you know, ranging from competition for influencers at this point, because so few people know how to do it well. And the big brands have rushed in and the big CPG companies are in there just paying anything, asking rates. So ineffective influencer rates continue to go up, which means all influencer rates go up. And so they're expensive. A, B, it's the hardest channel to track. I mean, when Instagram was a little more dominant and Instagram stories were a little more dominant, you could track it a little better because you could track link clicks. But now, you know, an influencer's followers, uh, an inf- like maybe 10 to 15% of an influencer's followers even see their content. So that just kind of removes a huge connection that you used to have in terms of knowing how many views you would even get of whatever post. Yeah, the measurement's impossible. It's mostly view through at this point. So you, you really kind of just have to echolocate as, as well as you can. And you also you know, have to be really prescriptive, tell them exactly what you want them to shoot, how you want them to shoot it, what, you know, any guidelines, talking points, all that. And then, yeah, just the day-to-day management of making sure they actually post, getting the content if you're going to spark it or dark post it or whatever else. I, just It's so manual. So everything about it is the hardest and most risky. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess in terms of influencer marketing, I just one more question I'm interested in is also on like the 
Obviously, influencers are powerful because they have these communities that they're very close to and they connect with them on a personal level that can kind of, like you said, you have a long path to purchase. So it can just eliminate huge swaths of that like trust and credibility things that slow purchase down. Is that how you view it? Like what is for you, how do you deal with the personalization aspect? You mentioned giving them guidelines and everything like that. Do you still give them freedom to kind of operate to make it authentic? Or do you try to control that to really make sure that they're telling the story in a way that is kind of aligned with how Newton Baby wants their brand to be perceived? It's a great question. Yeah, like our typical influencer brief is half you know, background about us and facts about the product and, you know, maybe a couple thought starters and ideas of how to show it or how to interact or whatever. And then the second half of our brief is like, make this your own, do it in your style, make sure it's authentic, you be you. Just don't do X, Y, and Z, which is like unsafe sleep practices for baby, you know, we can. So, so <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of both, but we we're very prescriptive in that they need to be authentic. There's nothing worse than when they're reading a script. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I mean, you mentioned channels that are working well for you. Are there channels that you're seeing really not work well these days? Yeah, so we were actually an early adopter of TikTok during the pandemic. I kind of personally fell in love with it and I went, no one knew anything about it. Their their ad team was a mess. And I I just kind of went to my team and was like, hey, who uses TikTok? Raise your hand. And of the people that raised their hand, I was like, who wants to run it as a marketing channel? And one person raised their hand. Like no one had any experience. No one knows what they're doing kind of still. TikTok mm. doesn't know, you know, how to maximize that effectiveness. So, but it worked really well when CPMs were 2 $3. Lately, and I think they're starting to fall again a little bit now, but in kind of September, October, the CPMs were higher than Facebook for us. And we were seeing like $20 plus CPMs in certain verticals, which is crazy. And given that their targeting is nowhere near as good as Facebook and Instagram, it just didn't make any sense to continue scaling budget there, which was such a disappointment because we had put all this work into basically diversifying away from Facebook, Instagram. And then once CPMs rose as high as they did, it didn't make sense to anymore. And CPMs at Facebook and Instagram were plummeting at the time. So, you know, that's kind of been a big disappointment. Like I love the channel. I love the creativity and kind of the lighter touch humor that's there, but it's not working as well as it was. Yeah, thank you for that insight. It's really interesting to hear kind of that process. I think TikTok has such a powerful, very like native in-stream format that feels very authentic. But like you said, the ad product is so far behind uh, the other platforms, at least right now. I'm sure they will catch up very quickly, but it's, yeah, it's not there now. I mean, going back to the long purchase journey, because I think that's a really interesting one for a high value product like Newton Babies. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, part of how you do personalization for customers at scale? Like, how are you connecting with them with both like current customers and potential customers? Because I think that's probably a big part of how you get them to convince to take that that leap in the big purchase. Yeah. So, you know, personalization was a super easy one for us historically when we were really a one product company selling, you know, a high-end crib mattress. Because basically, you wouldn't engage with any of our ads unless you were our customer, right? Like, unless you're basically pregnant, you're not going to click on anything with a baby in it. Maybe like, oh, it's probably not. And so we we didn't need to personalize at all. And we sold, you know, really kind of one product. And, the you know, we had basically two groups of targets, people who had bought a crib mattress already. And so we wanted to sell them sheets once we launched these. But like, you know, and those who hadn't, and they, so that was it. It was super easy. So once we started launching additional 
products for different stages of the baby having process, ranging from a kid's mattress, which we now sell for when the kid grows out of the crib, to a pregnancy pillow, which is typically often before any of the baby stuff is purchased. We really had to start personalizing and also not pet beds, which is, you know, can be, you know, most families get the pet first, right? Get the dog first, the child baby, but not, not all. And so we have plenty of customers who don't want anything baby and we really have to personalize everything. And the complexity has just like gone exponential. And we're a small team given our size. I use a lot of agencies and we outsource a lot where we can. Mm-hmm. And it just takes a ton of in-house like knowledge and expertise to personalize every customer touch point. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's something we're still figuring out. I would love to find a CDP that's more AI driven and does the work for you. And in, in some channels, it's easy. Like, you know, card abandoned emails, or that's that's easy, right? Table stakes, it takes nothing. Yeah. It's automatic personalization. But when you're talking about, so, you know, e- email and SMS are our are, are key CRM channels. And we've always been really good and really aggressive about collecting emails and phone numbers. But so, you know, I've, I've yet to see a, an email platform or a CDP that analyzes exactly when each customer should see each product, given that they've purchased product A, you know, show them product B at the after three days and project product C after six months and product D after two. Like, but that's that's what we need. And it just doesn't exist. So there's a lot of manual lifting on on those kinds of especially the post-purchase personalization pieces, they're hard and manual. Yeah, I believe it. I think the also like you said, agencies are very useful for like specializations at parts of the customer journey and being able to, you know, not have to build that function in-house. But then when it comes to really knowing the full picture and also really understanding like the messaging that you want to get across at key moments in that customer journey, it's where it can be more frustrating uh, to work with outside parties. I think we've yeah. all been there as marketers. Yeah, like unless the whole team, you know, has a baby, <laughs> the whatever agency, like they're not going to, they're not going to get the CRM pieces right in post-purchase, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned like the CRM, email, SMS, like we work obviously in the messaging space, which we we see that work very, very well for some of the, the types of things that you're, you're talking about as well. But do you, you know, you mentioned table stakes of the post-purchase, like cart abandonment, you know, the simple things that are easy to identify as key points in the journey and then run some level of personalization. Would that be... The full scope of where you're at now, um, and you're you're still, you know, you mentioned that CDP that would just be self-optimizing everything and and creating everything. I would love to see that too. I haven't seen any convincing software for that yet. No, um, but you know that probably leans a little bit into what you see as the most exciting trends at the moment in consumer marketing. What does excite you? Is it that CDP or is there something else? Yeah, I mean, I like I for sure love to see that kind of CDP, and it's, and it's funny like they all talk about their you know AI journey segmentation, those typical keywords, but inevitably someone has to set up those flows and those triggers. But I'd love a fully automated CDP, even like a CDP that that one full time person can run. But it's really you need a data data scientist for half of it to run SQL queries in your database, and that it's just it's crazy. But yeah, I, mean, I, I think something, especially the crazy exciting over just over the past six months, call it, is um, AI content. We had an ugly Christmas party for Newton, a virtual one, of course. And I didn't want to buy an ugly Christmas sweater because I was never going to wear it again. So I decided to use the AI artist guys to make my like a thing and print out. And, and it, was, it was so fun and interesting. It took a lot of work to get it just right. 
but it was really fun and interesting. So it kind of made me realize like, hey, we might be able to do away with photo shoots completely if we can, you know, basically take a 3D model of our products and really move a lot of our content to full AI created, generated 3D model content. So I think that's one super exciting spot these days. There's one baby brand, which all of their content is 3D modeled and it's gorgeous and it's amazing. And you you would think that they own 35 mansions and do like a photo shoot every day, but it's, it's all just 3D modeled. Wow. Yeah, I can see that being a very interesting place to get into. You know, I think generative AI is something that obviously in the messaging space, there's been all that uproar about chat GPT lately and like the mod- the open language models that they're building that are extremely effective. I think in the space that you're talking about to it, creating variations of things, creating models, I think where it falls short right now for me is the adding unique insight. So from a copy perspective, it's really it lacks the newness or like the perspective that people want sometimes. But I think it will it will do away with huge parts of that kind of repetitive, non-value additive work of like just rendering new, or not that it doesn't add value, but yeah, like rendering new new environments or rendering like the same text where really like the focus is on the, the model and the baby and the product and the environment is kind of secondary to that. So I think it's completely understandable that that would be an exciting space for Newton Baby. Do you have any projects of trying to dive into that at Newton Baby? Yeah, yeah. We actually hired a 3D modeler on like Fiverr or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually hired like 20 of them, to be fair, because <laughs> a lot of them are not good. But we hired we hired one in you know, some Central European company, actually two of them now, who have actually produced pretty good work. So we recently launched a high-end baby bassinet with the same kind of cool, breathable mattress. And we asked them to create, you know, basically beautiful master bedrooms where you could depict the bassinet right alongside the bed. And the, the work's good. It's it's kind of super nice, upscale, look and feel, looks completely realistic. Like every drop shadow is perfectly placed. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're for sure going to use it in marketing. So it's great. And, and yeah, I'd, I'd say it's begun. You'll always have to do the initial photo shoot to get the 3D model built on white background, whatever. But I mean... I don't know that we'll be doing a lot of in situ photo shoots at, you know, big, beautiful mansions anymore. <laughs> yeah, know. and that probably cuts out a lot of production costs and you know, I guess yeah. refreshing creative to keep CPMs down, to keep like ad fatigue down on those channels that you're operating on. I think that gets a perfect supplement to that. You know, I think you've talked a lot about what you're doing at Newton Baby, what you see as the the most exciting trends at the moment, you know, the space changes all the time. Just the nature of our conversation right now, I think, is indicating that. What would be kind of the top three pieces of advice you would have for other consumer marketers? Yeah, a little bit biased, just given my background and that, you know, by nature, like just inside, I'm a performance marketer. But the number one thing, the number one thing I always make my team do is learn a little bit of statistics. You can't like the whole beauty of digital is you can test and learn and iterate. And if you don't know or understand statistical significance, like you're going to make some really bad decisions. So learn statistics is for sure number one. Um, Number two, I mean, it goes along with that. But anytime you can measure anything, make sure you're measuring it. So make sure you have UTMs on every link you've ever created. Make sure you're looking at video engagement rates or playthrough rates or 20, 50, 75% rates, anything you can measure. And, you know, if you can't measure email open rates anymore on Apple, you can on Android. So make sure you're looking at those. I mean, just measure anything, everything you can. 
And then the, the third one is kind of a newer lesson for me, for sure. But it, it's actually based on that other baby brand I was talking about. Content can matter way more than you think. So banner ads don't work for us. Like basically high-end baby requires some education. You have to explain why this product's worth spending five times more. And so banner ads don't work. Like it's hard to convey, you know, that our mattress is breathable, reduces suffocation risk in a credible way in a little, you know, banner ad. Mm. But there's this other brand who is doing really well with it. It's because these they have these gorgeous imagery everywhere. And it kind of led to a realization that that sometimes content matters more than you think. And like there, it was different product categories, so they didn't have to do as much education. But I still never would have thought that banner ads would work, but their content was so beautiful and aspirational that it really launched the brand, which made me realize that I probably should go back to the drawing board a little bit and focus more on content. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah the interesting one that you can't, condense the prop into a single banner that you can still probably hit something that might make someone click and open the door into that product education, at least the start of the journey that kicks things off. So yeah, good advice. So, you know, learn statistics. If you want to be a digital marketer, measure everything and uh, don't don't underestimate the power of content. I have to ask based on those two and your focus on performance marketing, I think there's a lot of talk right now about brand versus performance what's the right way. And a lot of people, I think, who also have a view that's maybe the more the view I have that obviously separating them is a little pointless, that obviously brand supplements performance and performance creative is going to continuously create stronger brand affinity as well. Like, where do you where do you sit on that debate? Are you you mentioned you're a hard performance marketer. Is, is, do you live and die on that hill? Or do you? Yeah, no, yeah, I don't differentiate between the two at all. Really. Okay. Like, I mean, I think you have to look at the full funnel and it's brand at the top and performance at the bottom. Like, you know, that's typically the way that I kind of... But, I mean, performance should be measuring all of it. And if you're not doing any brand marketing, you're probably leaving a lot of money on the table and probably not scaling nearly as quickly as you should be. So you have to... I mean, it's just, it's one and the same. I don't, I don't know how you differentiate even between the two. I don't like, you know... I think there's a bit of a stereotype when people use the word brand marketing and it's, you know, Super Bowl ads that weren't measured by what M&Ms or whatever, Mars, and they didn't, you know, there's just kind of throw it up in the air and it's brand marketing. But yeah. like a Super Bowl ad, you can measure very easily incrementality. So like, sure, that's brand marketing, but I'd also say it could be performance. Like just measure it, see if it works. Yeah. And I guess functionally, you mentioned mm-hmm. you work with a lot of agencies and you have a small team. Do you separate brand and performance like functionally within your team or it's all one? It's all one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great approach. I think that's also... Another piece of advice that people can walk away with. Uh, that's that's very interesting. The bigger marketing teams where that's split up, like it makes no sense to me. I mean, I, I, there's because without perfect feedback and closing the loop, like how is either team going to know what's working? I, it just makes no sense to me. Yeah, something I've seen a lot as well. So that, I think that's an interesting insight to to take away. Five years from now, you know, as we wrap up the conversation here, you know, you've mentioned some big trends that you're excited about. What do you think the future of consumer marketing looks like in five years? First of all, I have no idea. Like things change <laughs> so quickly. I mean, if, if you would have said I'm going to be scaling down TikTok and scaling up Facebook three months ago, I'd been like, you're crazy. Facebook's over. So who knows? But the, the one thing that I think that we haven't, like everyone's been talking about it forever and trying it, although Facebook's now dialing it back, but the ability to, anytime you see, an item you want, press one button and purchase it wherever that item is. So whether it's on a TV show, 
an Instagram feed, a TikTok, wherever. Like no one's gotten that right enough yet. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's for sure the future. But even that, it's like kind of back to the future. Like live shopping used to be QVC and it was huge. And then it wasn't. And then China made it huge again. And now it is again. So, I mean, who knows? These things change so often. But I, I think it's crazy that you can't already do that. So like a one-click purchase of any item you see anywhere should be very close. And, you know, we're getting closer with QR codes and things like that. But we're we're certainly not there yet where if you're watching on a TV at home, like there should just be a pause button that highlights every product that's on that page and, you know, like another button that's purchase it. So yeah, that, that would be a very, very seamless experience yeah. and kind of the ultimate, yeah, interesting way to join the sponsored content, you know, the the changes that have happened in the industry for that to like the technology that underpins like such a seamless purchase experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's my, my one forecast. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think, like you said, I, most people also have the same reaction as you when I asked that question, which is like, wow, well, I don't, you know, three months from now, I don't want to make any predictions. Five years is a is a crazy amount of time. But I think it's interesting to hear, you know, where people think certain things are going and what stands out to them, because I always, I always get a different answer to that question. So I love, I love to hear it from people. Aaron, you know, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, I think it really interesting insight from like a performance background, but obviously your CMO, you're dealing with all of those things and you see brand and performance as one and you've done a lot of great work at Newton Baby. If people want to follow your journey, you know, learn more about you and what you do, where should they go? LinkedIn, you know, I don't post all that often, but I do sometimes and and that's it. Great. Well, yeah, you heard it. Check out Aaron Zaga on LinkedIn from Newton Baby. And for everyone listening, thank you so much. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Uh, Remember to go to spectrum.io if you want to learn more about what we do in the conversational marketing automation space or go to Spectrum on LinkedIn and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.